we have a kind of happy problem here at Stereo Embers, the podcast. We have so many letters that you guys have been writing to us that, I mean, we're basically inundated. It would take me a full weekend to respond to all of them, but I will because my policy has always been answer everyone who writes personally. So I'm going to cancel all social engagements because I have so many of them. And this weekend, I'm going to write back to everybody. But I don't have to write back to Lisa because I'm going to do Lisa's letter on the air. Uh, Lisa writes, hey, Alex, wanted to write to you and let you know I never miss an episode. I always listen to it when I clean my house. And your episodes are so long, especially that last one with Doug of the Connells. That was like two hours. Anyway, my house has never been this clean. You start talking and I start dusting, vacuuming, and folding laundry. Just wanted to say thank you for being my domestic partner. Love, Lisa from Seattle. Well, Lisa, not quite the domestic partnership I envisioned for myself at this point in my life, but I'll take it. Maybe that's the new motto of the show, Lisa. Stereo Embers the Podcast. Our listeners have the cleanest houses. I'm Alex Green, and this is the spotless Stereo Embers the Podcast. Check this out. I see what you see, and I hope the world is watching. Oh, they're gonna love the way you say the things you do. They don't know what's in store, they've never seen the likes of this before. And oh, you're gonna give it all away. I know how it feels when the day will give you nothing. But then you see the golden spark that's floating on the wind. The line becomes the verse, becomes the golden trees, the golden birds are known. You're gonna give it all away. of my guest today on the program, Dar Williams. Let me tell you a little bit about Dar Williams. Well, the New York-born Dar Williams, and I don't think anybody would argue with me on this one, has been crafting some of the most engaging music of the last 30 years. After graduating from Wesleyan, Williams got her start in the music business in the early 90s in Boston. Originally, she had moved there to pursue a career in theater, but Inspired by contemporaries like Throwing Muses and Melissa Farrick, Williams started writing her own songs, and she hit the ground running, knocking out cassette-only efforts like I Have No History and All My Heroes Are Dead. By the way, those are both awesome albums, but they're really hard to find, so if you've got one or you find one, hang on to it. Her proper full-length debut, The Honesty Room, came out on her own label, Burning Field Music, and it found her a fan in Joan Baez, who not only later recorded some of Dar's songs, she invited Williams to tour with her. With almost 20 albums under her belt, including The Green World, one of my favorites, Mortal City, My Better Self, and her new one, I'll Meet You Here, which we'll get to in a second, Williams has established herself as one of the most enduring and endearing songwriters out there. She's toured with Ani DeFranco, Patty Griffin, and Sean Colvin. She's recorded with everyone from John Prine to Cliff Eberhardt, 
And along with Richard Schindel and Lucy Kaplonsky, she formed Cry, Cry, Cry as a vehicle to honor her favorite folk singers. An environmental activist, an educator, and an author of several books ranging from YA to urban planning, Dar Williams kind of does it all. I'll Meet You Here is her first new album in six years, and it's a refreshing blast of rootsy rock, introspective folk, and horn-tinged Americana. This record is a melodic blast of utter musical joy. A playful lyricist who can also be so emotionally exact, it's like a direct sucker punch. Dar Williams, putting it simply, is one of our very best. And she was awesome to talk to. So here she is, the fabulous Dar Williams, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Gosh, I remember in 1992 heading out and um, with with a boyfriend who was a folk singer and my sister being like, well, there's this place called Slim's, like no clue what was what, you know, in the in the in the Bay Area and slowly working my way up to understanding it. And then, you know, everything started to happen in 1994. So you didn't know that Boz Skaggs was the owner. You didn't know anything about that connection. No, no. No, in fact, my sister, my sister said, there's a place called Slim's and there's a place called the Cow Palace, you know, and she's like, and there's the Greek theater. I I was like, I I think that you don't know (laughs) about what's going on. I was like, do you know an open mic? (laughs) (laughs) So, so it was, it was, uh, it was, but I just remember sort of not knowing any of the train and now, you know, having such a spectrum of, I mean, there are so many great venues in the Bay Area that I've been to. Yeah, and the Cow Palace would be like Van Halen. That was exactly. Was now right? she was, you know, she's a high school teacher. Right, right. Well, there were great places, Dar, in the Bay Area. A lot of those places, including Slim's, have closed. Yeah, yeah, I know. Which is yeah. heartbreaking. Um, you know, things are still there's so you know it's amazing to me. I'm going out on a tour this fall, and for you know hearing about how many places just went down, I'm amazed. I allowed myself to just be amazed at what's still around. That's um, we're going with that. It's a good way to go because I think that you know we can we can mourn what's no longer here, um, but it just it just makes it worse to think about you know. Yeah, it's well, it's you know, it's a very. Uh, I'm realizing now that that we have this window, and it's not it's it's not going to happen. But we have a window of contemplation as we go from the lockdown and all the revelations about how we work, what we value, what we support, and um, going back to, you know, business as usual. We can change business as usual and we can say, you know what, the NEA supports orchestras and ballets and operas and great. Um, Whereas when something like this happens and we lose a, a community cornerstone, cultural cornerstone, what do we want to do about that? You know, what do we, how do we want to approach that uh, collectively? And 
you know, the city wineries stayed afloat with um, yeah. Michael Dorf, and he and I were speaking about it the other day, and um, the freight salvage has stayed open. You know, a lot of places uh, took what they had and shared it with their artists or took what they could to stay afloat. And, um, and, but we can decide, you know, during times like this, we, we, do we want to lose something that is so organic and takes so long to, to build up? Cause I've been in these places you see, I mean, it's like a coral reef. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you're right. And I also wonder, I mean, do you know, if anything is happening administratively on those levels to alleviate or make things better or easier for, for artists? Um, well, I do know that um, I was uh, actually uh, Cry, 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 which is a you know collaboration I did with Lucy Kaplansky and Richard Chindel. We, uh, there's a live album of the two nights that we were at the Berkeley, at Freight and Salvage in Berkeley, and it's beautifully recorded. And we made that a fundraiser for something that, you know, might have been ad hoc, might have preceded the, the thing, but I think has definitely strengthened, which is the small venue. It's called, I don't remember. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a small venue supporter. And um, so I think those things happen. And I think from what I hear from Michael Dorf, um, uh, I think that there's been a little bit of that, you know, that union organizing poster with like the, all those little fish that form a big fish together. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Hmm, You're in the Bay area. I think you know that poster. So I've seen that poster. (laughs) So I think that, you know, independent booksellers have, have kind of joined together to become a collective big fish. And I think that independent venue runners are um, coming together to, to, to be interdependent. So that uh, that it's less likely for them to go down, and um, and you know it's it's actually takes a lot I think for people to um, uh, you know at a federal level to say coffee houses are important, and that's and we need to allocate money and we need to create the whole culture of understanding culture. That's a that's a big one, but I think um, communities, states, counties, and individuals have done a lot. Yeah, and it's remarkable to me, and I I agree with you, but I I feel like what's so misplaced is, at least in America, I can speak for what's happening here, because I don't know how it's going elsewhere. Canada seems better. Um, But in terms of like, you you know, like an athlete in the Bay Area um, was just signed to a a contract for $200 million. Yeah. Right. And I would think like, well, that's all well and good, but if we took a percentage of that it would save the arts on a level that would be incredible it'd be so sustaining just to take like 20 percent of that 200 million um mm-hmm. and it makes you it makes you wonder why it is so uneven in terms like mm-hmm. in other words make the money you need to make it's fine but why is it so disproportionate that's has always frustrated me yeah i mean i'm a person i'm really small i'm a really short person so i've gotten my friends hand-me-downs you know forever and my parents you know had a big garden instead of a pool my dad had bees you know we were always kind of laura ingalls wilder remember a friend gave me her bra and it was like string by the time i threw it away like (laughs) and i really i thought i was hardcore but then during lockdown i i thought wait a minute and i thought of different ways that i could really get more homesteady in my life and it and it's a focusing exercise um, that uh, 
where I just thought, wow, I feel happier. I feel happier for the planet, which is really such a priority. And I feel happier for my community and, you know, the people around me when I actually can figure out how to be, you know, to, to, to do more with less. And, and I had the, I have sort of the luxury of doing that. I mean, it's a scrappy living, but it's a living. And so I have that, I have the luxury of tweaking it as opposed to figuring out how to survive, which is a different, you know, which I have a lot of empathy for too. But, um, so I, I'm, so this whole thing about a person being given $200 million and just the fact that there's some weird imperative that when you have that, you have to buy a whole bunch of houses, you know, really seriously, like that's sort of foundationally something like I thought of at its core, like there are things called hotels, <laughs> you know, like, right. like you could probably even get a room in a hotel for an entire year instead of getting another house. So it's this idea that once you have $200 million, you're going to buy eight cars, eight houses, you know, eight everything, eight pools. And why not say, wow, this is so great. I can support eight organizations that don't get a lot of funding from the government. So, you know, the ethos is kind of like the more the better. And I've discovered myself really um, benefiting from like calming down <laughs> and and decoupling even more than I already had with my crazy hand-me-downs and my, you know, tomatoes. God, I'm a terrible gardener. That's what I learned in lockdown. Like, I was like, oh, well, now I can be the gardener. I knew I could be. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> really? That's surprising yeah, I mean, me. It, it's good. I mean, you know, I mean, you st- stick something in the ground, it grows. But it's just, um, uh, yeah. It, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm a decent gardener. And it's great. There are a lot of tomatoes right now. But, um, you know, I'm, people would send their lockdown pictures, like, you know, their porn of, of their raised beds and I just thought oh my god you know the kale was as high as an elephant's eye not me so um <laughs> <laughs> anyway but so I, I've just been thinking about how nice it is to n- not feel so burdened you know not to feel that that burden that wealth you know as my great-grandmother said the more you have the more you have to take care of and um I don't know I think Canada has something figured out and Canadians are like, we're just like Americans, you know, we're just as bad, we're just as good. There's an ethos around supporting the arts and culture in general in Canada that is different. It is different. And it's and it's in there. It's a very participatory cultural culture, and it's a very welcoming uh, cultural culture for, for touring artists. It's true. It's baked into their sort of... Um... I guess their their curriculum, their country curriculum, yeah. to support the arts, um, and and I, you know, and I and I, the thing about the athletes is that they'll do a thing where oh they bought a bunch of lunches for kids in inner cities, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is always a really great gesture, something yeah. like that. So it's not as though they're not contributing, but I never hear about that money being given to the arts. Of hey, we bought a hundred saxophones for an inner city school in Oakland. I think that would be a useful thing to do. And I just think mm-hmm. that it really is the value system of our country um, that the arts get a short shrift. And I think they always have. And I think it's sort of like, it just all was sort of taken for granted that we would always be there as artists and mm-hmm. writers and mm-hmm. painters. Mm-hmm. And in San Francisco, um, those people are gone. I mean, the, the, all the artists are gone. I know, I know, I know. We saw, we saw that happening. It's an interesting it's an interesting thing to think about as an artist, you know, it's, it's really interesting to learn about 
other people being squeezed out by, you know, artificial intelligence to learn things in college about, you know, the way labor works and, and who's holding the bag and how employees get treated and, you know, oh, the, the value of the labor movement countering that kind of hyper-capitalism. And then it's another thing to sort of get caught up in it and and to recognize that as an artist, you've seen yourself being commodified. Like, how much can we, you know, hold the bag on on all of the royalties and all of the, the streaming rights and the streaming memberships? And, you know, how little can we give to the artist while still making the artist think it's their fault that something has changed and their income stream has been cut in half? And it's, so it was really interesting to be in the middle of it and to see, you know, that whole culture of saying, well, if you love what you do, then, you know, A, you'll make plenty of money because that's just magic. And B, you'll, um, you know, you should, you should be able to live on, on dandelion greens because, you know, you love what you do. And, and to, to hear that kind of, you know, and let me throw my empty beer can at you while I'm at it. I mean, to hear that kind of scoffing, uh, at, at artists was very interesting to see that culture reinforcing itself of, of blame, you know, like you can't make a living in the arts. That means you don't care enough or you're not good enough. And uh, <laughs> it's not that yeah. simple. It was interesting to watch the culture emerge. There's also, I think, a, a sort of idea about the arts from, from those who are not artists. And, and maybe, maybe it's just simply, um, just not knowing. But mm -hmm. I remember I'm a writer and someone said to me, hey, I have an idea for a book. And they told me this story about their grandmother's life, which was kind of interesting. And he said, you should write it. It writes itself. And I thought, <laughs> it doesn't write itself. That, that's work. <laughs> and I think, I think people, you know, sort of think that there is this kind of um, Rumpelstiltskin magic of creativity that sort of happens and is somehow also self-sustaining. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's just the struggle of artists is real. And I'm not sure that people really understand that sometimes. Yeah, it's it's real. And also that the, the culture of, of, you know, value is is real. So and it's just it's like a it's a it's a landscape to study, you know, and I also like I, I went and I spoke at a college and I said, there are all sorts of numbers that are really dangerous to stay away from your weight, your age, your height, your audience numbers, your billboard ratings, how many albums you're selling. And, and now, you know, all sorts of, you know, ways to, to quantify things in the streaming and social media economies. So, you know, you have all these numbers there, you can get really caught up in them. You know, you can get caught up in that data stream and devalue yourself. And I said, but there's one number that I encourage you to think about, and that's money. And it was a women's college and they all went, Oh, think about money, you know, that's, uh, that means I don't care about the art because if I just do what I love, the money will come. And I said, that is such BS on every level. Uh, if you don't figure out what, you know, and I gave them this little equation and the presenters were like, wow, this is kind of tedious. But I said, look, figure out, you know, the, the thing that you know that you spend every month, you know, rent and blah, 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 insurance. And the things that you are probably going to do, you know, like I'm probably going to spend X number of dollars fixing my computer this year, <laughs> you know, tech stuff, and then like figure out what's left over. And, you know, if you spend $20 a day, then you only have to make this much money. But if you spend $70 a day, which in a city is going to be pretty easy, um, on top of all that stuff that, you know, you know, then that's what you like, just do some math, figure out what the concrete numbers are, 
and then figure out if money, if, if your art is, is allowing you to make that money. And then without any shame or blame, find a job that makes that money if you can't make the money from the arts. Do the, you know, reverse the equation. Figure out what you need and then figure out if the arts will support what you need. And by all means, have 18 housemates. And, you know, in Minnesota, I was like, okay, this is what you do. You get a big house. You make, you know, you have a silk screen on one floor. You have a recording studio in the basement. You have cheap housing for your, you know, friends on an attic when they come passing through town. And then, sadly, you're really going to have to start sleeping with people who know how to fix the house and do the gardening. And somebody raised her hand. She's like, we already do that. And actually, that's a nice idea about, you know, using people for their, their home fixing skills. But actually, we do that ourselves, too, because we're Minnesotans, so we're, we're also gardeners. But they were already figuring out how to sort of create these collective art pods. Um, and so by all means, do that. You know, figure out how cheaply you can do it. But, but don't say to yourself, you know, I can't make a living in music, therefore I must suck. That's just, that's so, that's so anti-creative on so many levels. It also undervalues, you know, it's, it's sort of, it begins this kind of snowballing the wrong way of undervaluing yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It kind of gives you an excuse to undervalue yourself. Right. Like my friend Bernice Lewis is a folk singer and she, she said, when I first met her, she goes, oh, I've been hearing about this album that you've, you've come out, you know, your first album. I said, yeah, it's amazing. I'm doing all this touring and it's just predicated on 200 lines of verse, you know. And she said, Wow that was fast. You really, you really demeaned yourself so quickly. That's amazing. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> yeah. And she was right though. It was a very interesting yeah. observation. Yeah. Yeah. I turned it into numbers a and B I used the numbers to, to damn myself. It's just not the way it works. I lead a songwriting retreat and you know, I say to folks, look, it's called writing a song that matters. So it's not about the money that you make from it. It's, it's, doing something, sharing it with the community, seeing how that lives in the community and, and feeling how it lives inside you, you know? And, um, so I, I said, look, if you, you're the, um, child of a podiatrist and you write songs about feet and they're beautifully crafted and they're really great and helpful, you know, all about different things that affect your feet, people will, you'll have an audience maybe, you know, <laughs> but maybe you won't, you know, but that doesn't mean that you are not creating something wonderful and well-crafted and deeply observed and deeply felt and deeply beautiful. So, the, you know, what we create and the audience that we find for them can be two very different things. I agree with that. And I also have found that the way that people respond to compliments also tips their hand about how they feel about their art, mm. you know? Mm. I, I love your poem. Uh, well, it's nothing like the New Yorker publishes, but I gave it a shot. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I love your poem. Who cares about the New Yorker? Um, do you find that you think about the way you receive compliments and the response that you give? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I am careful to, it's a, it's a line. So you're, that's a smart thing you just set up in terms of like, there's a line because, uh, you know, when I walk up on stage, I'm like everybody's, I, I, I look like everyone's sister. Like, that's kind of what I look like, I think. And so I, and I feel like everybody's sister. And sometimes I feel like a big sister, you know. And so you want to walk on stage and say, yeah, like, I had to do some stuff to get here, for sure. But 
you can do this. You know, I'm not that far. I don't come from, I don't, I am not what I call that yonder star, you know? And when I was in college, I thought, oh, you know, there's that yonder star, that person who gets reviewed in the New York Times, and they just come from that special island, you know, and then they, and they shoot up into space, and we look at them and think, gosh, could I ever be that, you know? And um, I'm, you know, I'm a folk singer. I'm, I'll never have that yonder star thing, but, um, but the idea of trying to puff myself up and, and, and elevate myself so to this to this idea that nobody could do what I do, I would like to feel like I did something that's accessible that makes people want to go home and go, oh, I could, do, <laughs> I could do that, but like not in a bad way, <laughs> like right. not like my children could do that, but like, oh, you know, she just sat on her bed and thought about stuff that was important and she turned it into a song and that was important to her and that's how it happened and and I can do that. So I, I, I try not to be too too humble, but also not to like, yes, well, people like me. Because <laughs> it's like, no, we're, we're in this together. I always thought that too, that yonder star thing, I always thought that either you're Freddie Mercury or, or there's nothing else. But Woody Guthrie was Freddie Mercury. And, and yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that like there could be a salt of the earth Freddie Mercury as well. Right. Um, so it's interesting that you, that you mentioned that kind of accessibility and how that yonder star is such an interesting concept. We have a lot of, well, it's probably just what we call American exceptionalism. You know, there's a lot of that kind of, um, you know, like if you want, let's say you want, I was thinking the other day, like, what if I wanted to be emotionally abusive? What would I do? <laughs> and I, and I walked around thinking about the ways I could cut people down around me, you know, like, yeah, you've got a nice car, but I noticed there's some rust around the wheels or, you know, you could always be that person who kindly points out everything that's wrong and, kindly undercuts what people are saying and um and i think that the yonder star is is one way that we can say you know you you know wow you did this but you'll never be that and you know and that is genius and that we can't even touch and that we don't even understand and um you know we'll try to do master classes but uh, you know we'll never even you know come close that's not, I, there's a, I'm writing a, a book about this, this retreat that I'm leading. And, and one of the essays that I'm working on right now is called the other song. So it's like, yes, that person wrote the thing that really struck you when you're a teenager, but you wrote the other song. And I've been so moved by stuff that people have written at my retreat. Somebody, um, has very, uh, she has weak bones. She, she discovered that she has like kind of osteoporosis and she wrote a song about it and she tied it into stuff around more, more mortality and also like, do I continue to live adventurously or do I really change my life? Like, what is it like to be alive with this understanding that things could break so quickly and so easily? And, 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 and everybody came up to me afterwards of all of the songs that were played that night this is a person who started writing songs in her 60s. Uh, and they said, God, that really, that re that's exactly what I was feeling. I was just in tears. You know, it was so beautiful. And it was so helpful just to, it was like medicine to hear that song. So it's like, yeah, you didn't write that song. You wrote the other song. But the other song's great. That's the song you wrote. It also has one of the most universal uh, metaphors I can possibly think of. You know, that we might break out in the world. Exactly. Oh, it was so, it was, the, you know, that, because it's a very eternal question. And also, but then there's that extra layers, you know, 
you discover as your life goes on that you have a particular vulnerability and and that you have to not be who you thought you were and not who you were and and how do you balance that and so it was even more so yes you're right there was this universal thing about you know breaking and then and then this other more closely observed thing that no one had thought to do about you know what happens when we're confronted with things breaking more easily and that's the song she wrote and that was so i mean i was very struck by it too and then but everybody was just buzzing about it that's what they that really spoke to them i love that other song concept because i think that you know we always think in terms of like you were saying, the numbers, the data, the, mm -hmm. the bombast mm -hmm. of um, the reach of something. Um, but some of my favorite music is stuff that um, is so, you know, under the table in terms of, like, for example, your neighbors, uh, the Felice brothers who live up mm -hmm. there. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if you're still in New York, but um, they're Hudson Valley boys and, and girls. And they, are, they write these remarkable songs that to me are as stirring as anything anyone's ever written. And yeah. I know they have an audience, but I mean, but that's, that's a band where I just go, oh my God, like these other songs you're talking about are kind of becoming the main songs in, in my life, to my ears. Isn't that great? I mean, that's great and, and exciting. And so I, you know, and also it's something that it's important to look at, you know, I, I also taught a course that was called uh, music movements in a, a capitalist democracy. And I put in the word capitalist because in Canada, you know, they have a Canadian can, uh, content mandate for their radio play. They, they have federally supported festivals, venues, tours, albums. Um, there's a whole, uh, it, you know, the, it, the education system is different. You know, there's just an influx of support and medical, you know, you're, yeah. you they have universal medical. So as an artist, you don't have to worry about getting sick and everything being over. You know, it's, it's not, there's a, there's a net. And, um, so I, so, but what I ended up learning from teaching this course is that there's also a time and a space when certain things flourish. So we look at these incredible, you know, all the Woodstock musicians from John Baez, of course, you know, to, to, um, musicians, Santana, Richie Havens, and they really are. I mean, it, it does become tempting to see them as, as a bright star in the heavens. Yeah. This was also a time when there was an incredible overlap by the people consuming music, consuming everything, you know, speaking up, saying things, and, and these artists. So this culture of young people looking to each other for a new authority, new religions, new attitudes, you know, new cosmic consciousness they really deified these artists and the artists rose to the occasion, but everybody, you know, but there was so much that was different that, that we could look to in terms of a lot of people were writing music. A lot of people felt empowered to write music. A lot of the music that was being written was easy to play on your acoustic guitar or your banjo. And, um, and a lot of those artists who were worth gazillions of dollars were walking around in jeans and with mud on their bell bottoms and, you know, really trying to be a very of the people thing, which was very inviting to, to, you know, youth participation and creating. And, and, um, it, there was a whole culture surrounding that stardom mm -hmm. that, you know, and now here we are, we listen, I listen to the birds all the time in the car. It's like, that's all. <laughs> I was like, Dar, you know, that's like 50 years ago. <laughs> 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 it's still, you know, so, so that's a, 
a demi-glass of culture that we could look at historically and say, what do we want to get back to, you know? How do we get back to the garden, if, if that was important to us? Time, be my friend, be my friend Though I have not been so kind to you Always asked where you were going Though you had no way of knowing Oh, no time, I have not been kind to you
I had this delusion up until I was about maybe 20 where I thought if you put a record out or a book out, you were living in a castle. Cause I just, I just worshiped artists yeah. until the sweet relief record came out for Victoria Williams. And I went, mm -hmm. Oh, not everybody has insurance. Not everybody is healthy. Um, and what happens um, when you're not and you don't. And that was the sort of the beginning of me understanding that like, you know, people need help who are artists, people need support in those kinds of ways. Um, and it's a very scary thing. I mean, it's a very scary thing to not have medical insurance as, as a as a person, let alone an art. I mean, just as anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just you know, somebody said of the most wonderful thing. She said, "Vigilance is not creative." So if you're if you're if your daily, you know, thing is is a certain kind of vigilance. That's just a, a tension, that is not the same as whoa, you know, that bird looks like, you know, that, that plane looks like a bird. That bird looks like a plane. How can, like I walked down the street once going like Ebola rhymes with Enola, like Enola gay. And I was like, Ooh, what do they have in common? You know, like the Ebola virus and the Enola gay. And the, you know, they both kind of descend into the culture and they create chaos and they, and, they, and no, that's not a song. No, that's not interesting, <laughs> you know, but it was like a lot of city blocks that I walked with that thought that's not a vigilant thought that's a creative thought and if you're if you know I think that I don't walk around worrying about medical things happening but when they happen to me and I don't have the right insurance for them it's it's terrifying and you suddenly are in the same boat with everyone else who's scared and suffering and vigilant and not able to be creative I mean it's it's, our health system certainly has given us, I think, a great opportunity to be completely empathetic with people who have very low incomes and and a lot of daily fear. You were mentioning the the idea that there's a difference between a struggle to live and a scrappy living. And you were saying, like, yeah, I've got this scrappy. Does that <laughs> ever does that ever wear on you or do you feel you've got a pretty good handle on it? Um, you know, I have some friends who are, um, they haven't quit, but they've really put a big pause button on their careers in music. And I thought, oh, I could do that. Like I could really maybe get that garden together and sew patches on my patches and, and, you know, kind of slow it all down. And I thought, no, I think I can go back and, but go back better with, with more, um, uh, you know, with that toolbox that, that now I understand, like what you were saying about how it's so easy for us to not accept compliments, to come up with the most self-denigrating thing to say. And, and so my toolbox of like, don't cut yourself down. Like the other, you know, be, be grateful and know that for two hours before a concert, Dar, you're going to be on edge because you don't know what's about to happen. That's the whole yeah. point, you know? And I mean, that's, that's what the audience is there to see. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. That's going to be different this time than the last one. And, and that's going to make me feel edgy. So let's figure out like the crossword puzzles, long walks, like don't expect much of yourself, you know, don't like make that your focus. And after a show, if you don't know how it went, instead of saying, oh God, what's wrong with me? Just saying, I don't know if that was a good concert or not. That's just really ambiguous. I just don't know what to do with that ambiguity. You know, 
I've decided to, to go back out into the world with more of an acceptance of the before, during, and after of performing itself and to value, you know, to, to, um, to, be, to value it, you know, to, to give it its due. Um, and I think that will help me. Yes, financially, it's a, it's a scrappy living, and that's, I like that. You know, I, th- I, I like that I, as Utah Phillips says, make a living and not a killing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And does that also mean that there is a different consciousness for you now when you talk about, you know, what constitutes a good show, a bad show? I mean, not a bad show, but a good show, and maybe a show that you didn't feel totally comfortable with. Um, and that sort of electricity of who knows what it's going to be. Have you sort of given yourself over to, well, let's just see what happens. And is that, is that a comfortable place to sort of roll the dice? Yeah. I, I, well, you know, I, to be honest, I've always been comfortable with that. I mean, in college, like the big heroes, I went to Wesleyan University in um, Connecticut, which is, which was like a safety school when I went there. It's kind of a hot to trot school now, but like, our heroes, John Cage taught at Wesleyan. I went to a concert where one professor, you know, hooked up another professor's head with um, electrodes and made a, a like a piece of music out of the EKG readings or whatever, the EEG wow. readings. And, you know, there was a lot of chance operation and, and kind of pulling, you know, pushing my effort up against a certain randomness and the two kind of dancing together and us seeing what happens in that moment. So there was a lot of love and trust for seeing what unfolded. And I think that helped me because, uh, you know, you can be very scripted and I, I like knowing what I'm doing. I like knowing my set list. I like warming up and putting on my makeup and all that stuff. But, um, it was great being in the arts at Wesleyan taught me that you're always going to be sort of dancing with the unknown and, if you, you know, sometimes you have these really dead audiences and you're like, why did you come? I'm okay. Right. <laughs> but, but it's okay. And, and it's hard to say blow up the whole balloon yourself, you know? So that's hard. But, but then again, if I didn't take a chance on, on live performance, I wouldn't like meet the kid in the front row who requests the babysitter song and her name is Feather. You know, like how great is that? <laughs> Well, I, I teach college for a living, and there are oftentimes I look at my students and think, why didn't you come? I know. <laughs> like, you this, this is your education. Like, this is just, okay, you know, blow yeah. this off. But, I, you know, this is like, you're going to, this can blow your mind, you know, and you're paying money for it. And you're paying money for it. I mean, it, it's, I mean, their price of admission is a little higher than a, than a concert, right? Where it's sort of like you're putting a four-year mortgage down and, um, but you know, what's really interesting is what you're talking about is that, so for example, let's say you're playing, maybe you're, maybe you're playing three, three shows, uh, in one area. Um, if I'm teaching three classes and they're all the same class, the temptation, and I've done this, I'll, I'll admit that I've done it and it never works. The temptation is to teach the same class. Mm-hmm. Um, but the audience is always different. The class is different. So the chemistry is different. And mm-hmm. I find that the real challenge is how do I teach the same material in a totally different way? Because if I try to replicate it, if I hit the same buttons, same jokes, same comments, they never land the second time. <laughs> Ever. Yeah, I know. I taught, I taught this course three times and it was so different each time. And what's hilarious is that I first taught in 2012 and then the last time I did it was in 2017. So there was a little hiatus. And I thought that it was cheating if I showed too much content in the thing. 
So I'd, I would assign movies and music and assign, you know, audiovisual stuff for them to do. But I was like, but, you know, if I'm worth my salt, it's a three-hour afternoon. I talk for an hour and a half. We have our snack. And then, you know, <laughs> and I teach some more. And, um, and I was like, gosh, this is not going so well. They look really bored. I, I guess I'm boring. You know, and somebody said, Professor Williams, you know, their final thing, they said, Professor Williams, like, why don't you have more like stuff? And so then when I did it as a short course at another place, I crammed it with audiovisual stuff. And I was so happy because it did all the work, you know, I mean, to say, like, check this out, check out this thing from Woodstock, check out John Sebastian speaking about children and childhood and parenthood on the Woodstock stage, look at the way these teenagers are figuring out how to be adults without chaperones. You know, that's really what's happening. Look at this, <laughs> you know, it was, <laughs> what a relief. And actually, I showed them the John Sebastian thing. And I said, why do you think I showed you this segment from Woodstock? This kid raised his hand. He said, because it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> exactly. Good answer. <laughs> yeah. I and And there's moments where, I'll walk out of a class and I'll go, well, that was, that was all me. That was, that mm. was my fault. Um, mm. Other times I'll walk out and I'll go, that was not my fault. That was just mm-hmm. simply right. So when you play a show and I'm, a, I'm not sure what your, your postmortem is after a concert, like, do you, do you play it back in your brain and think like, Oh, maybe I could have done this better or I nailed that there. How yeah. critical are you of, of what just happened? I mean, I wouldn't even call that critical, but yeah, it's, it's, I think a, a replay is, is valuable. I don't think I'd actually want to see a replay like on my computer, but I can replay it in my mind to, <laughs> to soften the, the, to soften things a little. Um, but yeah, like when I was out in this, on a stage the other day, it was a subscription base that I didn't know about. And it was also a, a winery. So I didn't, uh, you know, I played a bunch of those this summer cause they're outside and the audience looks so like, huh. And and I just thought, you know, I should expect that every time. And I should have a, a thing in my back pocket with maybe a, a set with some covers in it, more obvious songs, more crowd pleasers, less of a deep pocket, you know, less of a deep catalog. And, um, you know, I, my, my concerts this summer have been like these diehards who have been excited to get out again. And so there's so much love out there. I thought, but... I can just, I can control that. I can have an A set list and a B set list. And if, you know, so, so that's another thing that's changed instead of going like, Oh, why did I, Oh, you know, I drank this and it had milk in it and, and so phlegmy how, you know, what an idiot, you know, it's, I, I thought, no, there's sort of a general flow that I can try to influence. And if an audience is going this way, I can accommodate, you know, their low energy, their, conservatism i don't know <laughs> right like so there's more of a, a macro uh, uh reflection these days which which i think is also healthier than getting on my case for the little the little stuff yeah i think that's useful i've always had this idea about you that having read your books and and being i'm a vegetarian i'm not sure if you are you still are you, are you... i'm a vegetarian again okay you're vegetarian uh, which, again it, and, and, uh, yeah, I have milk in my coffee. I eat eggs, but otherwise I'm, um, it's, it's, it was a long time coming. I'm not, it's, it was no sacrifice at all. Yeah. We're, we're of the same. That's me too. Those are my, my, my limits too. Um, but I always felt having read that book that you wrote where I thought 
Dar Williams, you could put her anywhere in the world and she'd figure it out. Like you'd figure out a city really quickly. Um, is, is that true? Did you, did you sort of feel like at home in the world where almost like a Woody Guthrie, where you could sort of land in a place you've never been and go, I know how to find the spots. I know how to find the people, the places. Um, you, you've always been really inspiring to me in that regard. Um, is that is that true? And Or that is a romantic ideal I have about you? And also, have you noticed that when you go to towns now, that there's a change in the landscape based on where we are in 2021? Well, this is the book that I wrote. It's funny. I, I you know, I wrote a, a guide to vegetarian, you know, to health food stores. And you are so right. There's actually a big rainbow bridge between that thing I did in 1993, and um, and this book that I wrote in 2017. That's called What I Found in a Thousand Towns, um, because writing about the health, the health food directory was actually a guide to good coffee. <laughs> And it was also like a guide to the vibes because there's a place like, for instance, called Monroe Street in, um, or Monroe Avenue in, in Rochester, New York. And so you drive around and you're trying to find something, you know, trying to find some coffee. You're trying to find the vibe, trying to find that feel. You're writing a song. You want to you know, like sit down somewhere and write it down. And you find Monroe Street. And it, ha and it has a natural food store on it and has a tattoo parlor and it has drop-in yoga classes and it has all these things. And, you, and it has a kind of a buzzy warmth to it. And the same is true in Columbia, Missouri. And the same is true in, um, you know, well, in the obvious places, but, you know, and also in Western New York. And so, so um, that idea that you kind of find this place that has the warmth has a feeling of warmth and buzziness and, and welcome. You know, they call it disruption now in the tech industry. You know, that's easily disrupted. Um, you want that disruption. And Richard Florida talks about it, you know, that the sort of urbanist it talks about where's the, where's the talent, where's the tech, where's the tolerance, like where's that openness to the future and to each other. Um, I felt that when I was trying to find those neighborhoods with the natural food stores in it. And then I realized that you know, there was a reason that those places had built up to what they were, that there was that organic thing coming back to the beginning of our conversation about why we support cornerstone cultural places in our, our communities. Um, and, and what helped them do that? Like they didn't just decide to get along. Like how did that coral reef start? Right. Um, I, I don't always luck out in finding that thing. So I'm sorry. I'm not a magic leprechaun, but, <laughs> and actually I had a huge crush on this drummer once and the whole band knew it and, <laughs> they, and they would watch me and the drummer had no idea. And he was a runner and he would, and so we would go on tour and he would jump out of the tour van and go running. And so I started running and he would always find this incredible fairyland. And we were in New Jersey and I said, yeah, I went running. It was just uh, suburbs, you know, and it, it was trash day. I had to run around all the trash cans. And it was it was really like I was just trying to find that space. But I don't think it's there. And he came in like halfway through my telling this and said, oh, I found the reservoir. I ran around the reservoir. There were egrets and, you know, beautiful marsh grasses. And the whole band just saw me looking so sad and, you know, despondent. And Billy, the guitar player, said, well, I saw a rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> and so to this day, like when somebody does that FOMO thing, like, oh, I found the neighborhood with a cathedral and, and egrets and, you know, and dragons. So 
they'll say, well, I saw a rhinoceros. So it, it's, it's no, nobody has the pure magic of finding that, that spot. But I do consider myself to be someone who can help people figure out how to create that spot or to value that spot when they've started to create it. And I also think that, and that's a really valuable thing. And I, and I think that you were mentioning that you're sort of the Laura Ingalls Wilder existence of your youth, um, but you're all, you're quite street smart. I mean, you're very savvy in terms of get to a place. I, I was interviewing Kristen Hirsch years ago, and she mm. said that her her son had mentioned, and I love this. I mentioned it a lot, where he sort of said that you have to find your teammates. And mm-hmm. I feel the, I feel you've always done that in terms of right, find the natural store, find the yoga mm-hmm. place, find um, because for 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 us, that is, I mean, it's easy to be a sports fan and say, I'm going to go to St. Louis and go to a baseball game, eat mm-hmm. a hot dog and look at a guy and raise a beer. And we know where, why we're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have found their teammates and that's very cool yeah. for people that are in the arts community. Uh, it's, a, it's not quite as easy, but it's still there. And I, I feel that there is a sort of street smart savvy for you that you, you know how to find those places. I thought that was cool. Well, I hope so. I hope so. And, I, and I'm very aware of, of being very complimentary and supportive of people who have, you know, it's a scene, you know, so they, they have their teammates, we have our scene. So you want to find the scene and the scene is just where there's warmth. You know, if I'm working on a song and I walk into a cafe and the person, the person at the cash register is having a bad day and they're rude, it really, it just, it, you know, creativity, it's, it's fragile. And and, you know, and, and I want a little bit of caffeine and I want a nice table and I want a nice view out the window and I, and I want to have my notebook open. So I have to trust that I'm going to go in here and have some sort of thing and, um, you know, something that's going to help that. And if a person is just dead to, you know, is, is confrontational, it, it just breaks everything. Likewise, though, if that person has that kind of friendly you know, warmth about them, it will help that song. And if I see people talking to each other with animation and and regard, I call it um, positive proximity. So basically what we, what we hope for each other is to, to help each other support and find and be in places with high positive proximity with, you know, the sign that says, come in, we're awesome. Instead of don't use our bathroom or we'll shoot you dead. You know, like those those things, having that sense of distinction and finding the place that's open-handed. How are you with friendships? Because it seems to me like your your friendships with Lucy and um, and the list goes on throughout the years. It seems like you're really good at maintaining friendships, which is hard to do in life as a person, let alone as an artist. Um, is that perception accurate? I have a lot of friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I mean, it's just like, it's, you know, there's this kind of, you know, how do we measure our lives? Well, you know, it's, there's some people who are very depressed and I'm like, you know, rename the chapters of your lives, you know, like instead of like how well you do financially or how, like how many books you've written, it's like, how many friends have you had? How many, you know, how many people have you slept with that that's a good experience, you know, like, like name the chapters after those, your liaisons or uh, after birds you've seen or you know rename the chapters so I could rename I could name the chapters for my friendships and that would help that helps me order my life I mean it helps me write my songs it helps me survive on the road and it helps me feel like a valuable member of society between writing songs because you know that sharing of insights and and aha oh that's the word for it and it's it's everything 
I read Henry Miller's Book of Friends years ago, and I remember thinking, like, grumpy as he may have seemed, mm. I don't think he was an asshole because he had mm-hmm. a lot of friends and he had a lot of cool people as his friends, and they were all chapters in that book. Um, and so, and what do you think the secret is to maintaining friendships? Is it just as simple as being present and being available? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that that people, you know, I think you present a certain vulnerability and a, and a certain, again, open-handed sort of questioning and, and the people who are sit beside you and, and open up their hands and share and, and don't, don't, um, exploit that vulnerability, but, but are with you in that, you know, um, where you're part of this thing where you're trying to figure something out, like that's a, that's a momentum that you can keep. And, there's one thing somebody taught me, which is that um, if someone's predatory, you know, if you present the vulnerability and it's actually used against you, you know, to, to be abusive, it, it's, it's worth a cutout. And, and I, because, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, you have to give everything a try, you have to stay with. And I, I you know, you can't quit that whole culture. If somebody's kind of has that attitude where they're just there to drain you and, and to prey on your vulnerability instead of, kind of creating the safe space, that magic circle, because as they say, the, the true warrior is a hundred percent vulnerable. Um, then, then that's, that's not a friendship that can really progress, but you know, there's a lot of ways to, to be friends with people where you don't get into that kind of exploitative, um, mean spirited, uh, predation. Um, and, and I like having a lot of different kinds of friends. I mean, I don't know if this is true for you, but it's like, there's the friend that I can talk to about like the sex stuff. There's the friends that I can talk to about the God stuff there. <laughs> oh, well. And there's the, and then in the music community, the people I can talk to about the gig stuff, which is a really funny, deep community. Like they just, they're really forgiving. They're, they, we share horror stories of the stupid things we've said on stage. <laughs> <laughs> the gigs, you know, the, the, you know, the, the gigs that got canceled after we like had to travel six days to get to them. Like it's, it's, such, <laughs> it's endless. Like talking about going to Germany and the things that people say to you, it, it's really kind of remarkable. Like you were much more in tune this time, you know, it's, <laughs> there's just a very sort of straightforward, uh, communication that you experience and it's fine if you've got friends who say, oh, this is what you should expect and it happens to all of us and, and there's plenty of love in the room, but they will be like, wow, you know, you were, you really look like you were half asleep, maybe three quarters asleep the last time, but this time you were much more awake. I don't know what you're doing, but good for you, you know? <laughs> and I think that you've pretty much covered it with sex, God, and gigs. What else is there? <laughs> Yeah. Oh no, there's food. food. That's a good one too. There's food. Food. And, and, and bodies and, oh yeah. And in the environment, I have my friends that I talk to about because I, that's my favorite topic. It's like, that's really what I want to be, you know, as a person who helps, you know, create sustainable life, life for humans on the planet. Like that's, that's probably what I would consider my job to be, whether it's emotional stability or (laughs) physical, you know, sustainability. Like, so I have friends who are really into that, like more than I am. Uh, and, uh, and that's a real, those are passionate friendships. I, you're right though. I did learn. It took me, it took me 50 years when I, when I turned 50, I went, 
So if a friend isn't emotionally available, that doesn't make them a bad friend. That just makes them a friend you can't talk to about emotional things. Mm -hmm. But maybe they're great to talk to about black flag B-sides, right? Exactly. Or mycology. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And there are some friends that are so emotionally available that you never get around the black flag. You just simply talk about the emotions. And I realized that your friends are kind of mosaic. And if you have plenty of them, you have a beautiful picture in your life that hits all those sex god and gigs and food. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Totally. Yes. And I and 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 I think that does make for a very full life. Yeah. I agree. I agree. What will I was going to I was just going to ask you what will happen in the future? <laughs> That's a very heavy question to ask you. Um but what will happen in the future? What do you think? I know you have dates planned. Um are you are you optimistic that you can hit those dates? And what's your level of anxiety around getting out there? Well, uh, as for the aforementioned uh, scrappiness, yes. I am going to get out there. And um, and I had a, a COVID protocol conversation with my tour manager and manager, two women I adore. And they were so on top of all this stuff. So uh, we're going to do it. Um, but we're going to be doing what, you know, Live Nation is doing and, uh, you know, it, all of the proof of vaccination or a negative test and and masking in the audience, which which I was like, oh, come on, mom. <laughs> but I was just at three events that were not. Um, I mean, OK, so here's my confession. Uh, uh, people weren't masked. I was I was performing in two of them and um, an, an audience and and was brought up on stage for another one and no one was wearing their masks you know i i came in with a mask i was being careful but by the end of the night in all of these venues i wasn't wearing a mask mm. and then a few days ago i didn't feel so good and it's probably because i don't have my like city protocols in place where like don't touch the banisters don't touch poles open doors with your sleeve <laughs> you know and then i like rubbed my eye so i probably just and i'm fine now but i just thought it's so easy to go with the flow. These are lovely people and they stop wearing their mask and they, you know, nobody gets like way close talk right now. Like everyone's kind of arm's right. length. And I thought, okay, we're okay. And you know, oh, there's some open windows and, and we're, we, we are being safe in this in this way. So we're just playing an odds game that it's going to be okay. And, no, I wasn't, I, I went with the flow and then I looked back and of course I told those friends, you know how you have those friends who are much more careful and they're like, oh, you didn't share a mic. And I was like, I know, I thought that was a little weird that everyone thought that was okay. And they're like, you, you didn't leave the venue. And I'm like, no, I just sang my heart out. Ah. So um, I'm glad for the protocols because it doesn't allow for any of the, the wiggle room. And then we can, then we can do it. Then we can do it. And, and ideally, we just do that wonderful thing where one day the cliff, you know, we hit that moment and the Delta variant isn't stalking us. We, we've stalked it and we've reached that point and we can be a little more loosey goosey. So I, you know, I like being loosey goosey in so many ways in my life. And I'm also love the fact that I'm surrounded by people who say not so fast, Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Well, it's funny, and the way I frame this program is in the beginning, in the introduction, I, I extol the virtues of your album, which is just so beautiful. Um, but I'm breaking my own protocol to say, I think you've written the greatest album closer of 2021. I think it's like the way this album ends is so perfect. Well, it's, it's a little like 
Joni Mitchell both sides now. Like you write a song called You're Aging Well when you're 24, 25, because your 27-year-old boyfriend left you for a 20-year-old. And, uh, and then you revisit it in your early 50s. And, and it's a really different song. And you know what? But also the same, which is, I think that's the magic. It's, it's that it's, it, you could say, and it's so different now, but it's like, but it's also, you know, we're always like the only change is, you know, the only constant is change. Yeah. But there's also continuity that we can really be happy about. And some things don't change and it's so cool that they don't. And, and that's in there too, for me. So yes, you're aging well, you're <laughs> we aging all, well. We're all getting there. Yes. You're, you're holding up just fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to unpackage the, the sort of the euphemistic feel of that to a much more like optimistic, like, no, you know, you're aging well. And this is what that means. It's an inside out thing. And think of that, like, it, and it's very true. I mean, it's, it's really, I was touring with an artist and she said, gosh, I just, thank you for saying this and this and this. They're like, you have so much wisdom. And I don't really travel with that. Like people are much younger than I am. And it was so nice for a person to say like, Oh, you know, you taught me like, it's okay to, you know, like if, if a person keeps on touching my shoulder, you know, that, that, that's, that, that's weird, you know, and they don't have to touch me. And yet I probably have to just deal with it until I walk away, you know, unless I want to turn you like just all that little, yeah, you know, experience based stuff. Like it's, you get, you accumulate such an incredible toolbox by the time you're in your early fifties and, and, and love, you know, like, Oh, right. That's the thing where that person's going to say that thing. Cause they're really defensive and they're going to ha have this thing. And uh, let me time it on my watch in eight hours. I'm going to get an apology. Oh, there it is. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I didn't have to get that upset. That was just their business. It's so much more love that I have too. I said something to a friend of mine in high school. I hadn't seen him in 30 years and I saw him fairly recently and he looked great. And I said, to him, I didn't mean to say it, but I said, you look eerily young. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what's happening? How yeah. do you look this young? Um, and it made me, the song made me think about it. It's a beautiful song and it's just, um, and it's a beautiful album and it's just another winning entry into an already winning discography and congratulations on a, on a really marvelous album. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm so glad you like it. I love it. Um, and I've wanted to talk to you for 30 years, and I'm so glad we did it now. I think this is great. And we'll do it again. Thank we'll you so much. So awesome. Dar Williams. What a great conversation. So much fun to talk to her. Uh, her new album, I'll Meet You Here, which, by the way, has one of the best album covers I've seen in a long time, uh, is available. DarWilliams.com is where you need to go to buy the album and find out what's going on in the world of Dar Williams. There's always a ton of stuff. So go there, buy it, and see what's happening in Dar's life. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening in my life. I can assure you it's far less than what's happening in Dar Williams' life. But uh, what can I do? 
I'm not a charismatic singer-songwriter. I'm just a guy behind a microphone who occasionally writes books and eats weird food. Check out bombshellradio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. Don't forget, you can also follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor. You can also follow me on Instagram, at Ember's Podcast, or just email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. A reminder that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is now available on all podcast platforms. We're now on Audible and Amazon, by the way. Uh, Go to the one that you use, rate and review, subscribe, tell all your friends. It's a long list of things that will take you four seconds, and we would appreciate you doing it very, very much. We also appreciate you listening week in and week out. Thank you for your support. It means the world. Let's close the show with a longer listen to You Give It All Away by Dar Williams from her new album, I'll Meet You Here. Enjoy it, and thank you again for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. I see what you see, and I hope the world is watching. Oh, they're gonna love the way you say the things you do. They don't know what's in store, they never seen the likes of this before, no, you're gonna give it all away. I know how it feels when the day will give you nothing, but then you see the golden spark that's floating on the wind. The line becomes the verse, becomes the golden trees, the golden birds, and know you're gonna give it all away. Kaleidoscope is spinning us away But find the means and find 